Well, as I was looking at our passage this morning, here from the book of John, chapter 8, um, I was thinking it reminded me a lot about something currently going on in a lot of our work lives. Uh, I don't know if you are experiencing this right now, but um, for many of us, it is work review season. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where you got to, yeah, yeah, I got some amens there. Uh, you got to rate yourself, right? One to five, my entire year. How did this go? And not only are you rating yourself, but then when, once you finish rating yourself, you either, you're either rating other people or other people are rating you. And, and you get this review, and, and like, honestly, you can't remember most of the stuff you've done throughout the year, right? You're like, gosh, let me think. What did I do that was good? What did I do that wasn't so good? And you can't ever give yourself a five, right? You can't ever give yourself the perfect score. If you don't know this, you should know this. Listen, take notes. You don't ever give yourself a perfect score because if you give yourself the perfect score, you will be brought down. But you also don't want to give yourself like the really low score either because they might just hand it to you, right? You're like, oh, I got, I got a two. Oh, yep, you did get a two. Uh, so you got the scale one to five, and, and you know, and always the dreaded needs improvement. All right. Well, in Jesus' day, and in our story here, there may not have been a scale of one to five, but there was certainly a scale between moral failure and moral self-righteousness, as we'll see here in the story. There were those who had messed up, and those who wanted to point out where others messed up. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into our story. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. Lord, your word is good, and it's good for us. It's good for us to, to read it and to study it, to understand what's happening and, and what you're trying to teach us through, through your words and through your actions whenever you're here on earth. So, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, that you would use my words so that we could learn and we could examine ourselves and we could become more like you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's pick it up. John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he went to the temple again. That's Jesus. And all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who was caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order they might have evidence to accuse him. So Jesus stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left and the woman in the center. Then Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus said, go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. This is a super interesting passage of scripture. Uh, If you're reading it in a a hard copy, you might see something before and after uh, this passage that says something like, the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. That's a bit of a curious statement for the Bible. 
Um, In case you're wondering what's going on with this passage, here's the deal. The earliest copies of the manuscripts of John don't include this exact passage. Um, In fact, uh, if if you look at the language in the story, the truth is it probably wasn't written by John. It was probably written by Luke. Um, It has a lot of the grammar that Luke uses, and so we think it was probably written by Luke. Uh, If you're reading the book and thinking, like, this seems a little out of place, well, it does, because before and after this text, Jesus is teaching in the temple to groups of people. He's, He's not having these conversations about an adulterous woman. And in fact, this is the only time in the book of John where it mentions Jesus writing anything. So it's interesting that it's, it's placed here. But for whatever reason, in the early church history, this story was placed here in the middle of this, in the middle of the book of Luke. I'm sorry, in the book of John. And what has happened is, if you take this story as it's written, Jesus has gone from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And Mount of Olives is a, a three, three mountains that are just outside of the city of Jerusalem. He often went there to retreat. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. I mean, so you, we see again and again, Jesus goes there to retreat and to connect with God. All right, let's dive in from there. It says, at dawn, he went to the temple again. And all the people were coming to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. So in the morning, Jesus heads from the Mount of Olives and he heads back to the temple's outer courts. This was a big open area where the teachers would would come and their students would start gathering around them. Just think of this open courtyard where you have these groups of rabbis with their little group of disciples. And this is where they're teaching people. And you can just imagine, as, as all these different rabbis are there and, and they're teaching, here's Jesus with his disciples. And guess who everybody comes to? All the people start coming to Jesus, right? And you can almost feel the jealousy of the other teachers as this story unfolds. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. And they said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They asked him this to trap him, in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. So as this large group gathers around Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees, they interject. They come in and they, they want to steal the spotlight here. Scribes, who are the scribes in the story? Well, Throughout the Israel history, whenever, uh, around the time of Jesus, these people had become the people who studied the law. Like, they were into the law of Moses. They were interpreting it. They, they in fact, would have been like de facto lawyers or ethics professors. So it wasn't uncommon for them to debate things like this uh, or, or to ask questions like they're asking here. What does the law of Moses say? What do you say? But you might find something strange about what has actually happened here. Where is the man caught in adultery? After all, adultery is not exactly a solo sin. You might say it takes two to tango. So, was this fella quick and he ran out the back door of the house? Or what happened to him? Where was this guy? Plus, their testimony is the woman was caught in the act of adultery. So why are they here in the outer courts of the temple to debate the punishment? Why not just exact the punishment that the law says? Also, who is this woman? Well, the answer becomes plain. They had no intention of fulfilling the law of Moses. They only wanted to trap Jesus. In fact, the story of the adulterous woman has very little to do with the adulterous woman. It has to do with these leaders and Jesus. 
They didn't care who they drug through the mud in order to trap Jesus. What you, see is, what you see here is a group of religious leaders and teachers leaving the man that was guilty of the same sin and dragging the woman in her shame. The woman who had less privilege, less authority, and was more vulnerable to being taken advantage of by this patriarchal, patriarchal society. In fact, if you were to understand what, what they're actually calling here is for her to be stoned. And this was a specific punishment for a specific crime. If we're to believe what they're saying, what, what they're actually saying is this is a young, engaged woman, a betrothed woman. Not, not like a, a married woman who, who is committing this act. This is a, maybe even a teenager that they're dragging in front of Jesus. So the purpose of the law of Moses was that people, especially leaders, would understand God's justice. And they would care for the poor and the marginalized. And they would seek to live righteously as a people. But here we see that the students of the law and the leaders are doing the exact opposite. In, in fact, they're oppressing this woman with injustice by using the law. In addition to this, the Jews, during Roman rule, they didn't even have the authority to do capital punishment. Uh, as you'll see whenever Jesus goes on trial in a few chapters. Only the Romans had the authority to put someone to death. So there's the trap. They're either trying to push Jesus to disavow the law of Moses and therefore lose the followers that he is, uh, lose credibility with the followers that are listening to him. Or, on the flip side, he agrees with the law of Moses and he's in direct revolt against the Romans and they can just hand him over to the Romans to be killed. So what's he, what does he do? Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only what was left, oh, sorry, only he was left with the woman in the center. What Jesus writes no one really knows. Part of it is because it's written in sand. Has anybody ever built a sandcastle? They don't weather the effects of time very well. In fact, my boys and I, whenever we go to the beach, we love to build sandcastles. We, we build them up, but our sandcastles look a little unusual because my four-year-old loves to destroy sandcastles, and my two-year-old loves to eat sand. So we have this combination where dad is getting the water, building the tower, and one kid is wiping it with his hand, and the other one's grabbing two handfuls and putting it in his mouth. It doesn't last very long. So, same thing here. It, it washes away, even if it's a masterpiece. But more importantly, the writer of the book chooses not to tell us, chooses not even to speculate about what Jesus wrote. But some have speculated over the years about what Jesus might have written to these folks based on what they do next. Maybe he wrote, for example, from Exodus 23, 1 and 2. It says, you must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with the crowd to pervert justice. Well, that might have struck a chord with them. This is not looking good for the scribes. 
In any case, as Jesus writes, they continue to badger him. So he finally stands up and he challenges them that the one without sin should throw the first stone. This is a direct reference to the way punishment is laid out in the law of Moses. You see, the witness of a crime must not be a participant in the crime and must, not, and must also be the first to throw the stone. For example, Deuteronomy 17.7 says, The witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death, and after that the hands of all of the people. You must purge the evil from you. Jesus isn't saying here that the scribes and Pharisees must be completely sinless in order to punish this woman. That would be impossible for any person. But rather, he is saying they must not be complicit in this crime or in a similar crime. In other words, whoever, whoever is not an adulterer among you, you throw the first stone. To quote Michael Scott, well, 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 how the turntables have turned. Uh, Jesus isn't fooled here by a culture of shame. As it turns out, Jesus was aware that these powerful men could get away with sinning without anyone bringing them to task. So as, as men in their culture, they risk far less legally or socially for their sexual sins than women who were brought to the temple courts like this and publicly shamed. Jesus cuts through their double standard. He avoids their trap, and they all begin to walk away knowing their own sinfulness. For many of us, we grew up in a culture of shame, either within the church or within our families or our friends. Here we are 2,000 years later, and it seems like not much has changed about how people treat one another. Listen, if I put you to shame, then I look better, right? And if I put you to shame enough times, I look like the best. Such junk. When people get their value from putting others down, they aren't being leaders, and they definitely aren't loving their neighbor as themselves. Matthew records Jesus saying this to the Pharisees. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow others entering to go in. Jesus isn't fooled by a culture of shame. After all of these men that are accusing her are gone, Jesus turns to the woman. He's kind, and he has great care. And he stands up, and he says, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Jesus knows this young woman's heart. He knows if there is sin in her, which is implied here. But he starts the conversation by addressing her with respect and with kindness. He, do, he actually doesn't ask her if she's guilty. He doesn't ask her to plead her case. Among the many layers of what's going on in this moment, it's worth noting that Jesus has recognized that she ended up in this position because of her status as a marginalized person. She's been treated with inequity. The leaders have abused their power. This is in direct opposition to how Jesus elevates women. For example, a few short months after our story here, we get to chapter 12, and we read about Jesus' anointing. 
In the tradition of Israel, kings were anointed with oil before taking the throne. This anointing was always done by a man of importance. For example, David is anointed by the prophet and the last judge of Israel. His name was Samuel, an important guy. Then, when, then in John 12, 3, it says this. Then Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus, she took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. This story is also recorded in Matthew and Mark. And who was it that God chose to the first witness of the risen Christ himself? Mary Magdalene. And so, here in this story, you can see the tone of Jesus' voice is to address this woman, not out of contempt or disgust, but, but rather directly and kindly. And then he turns to asking about her accusers. She responds by saying that, that all her accusers are gone. And she calls Jesus Lord. I don't think she would have called her accusers Lord. I don't think she had that kind of respect for them. She's re recognizing he has this unique authority. He has the authority to judge in this matter. He can say, you're right, you're wrong, here is the punishment, here is what you're worth. It's Jesus that can say that. Jesus doesn't play into this culture of shame that, that had been brought to him. Rather, he tells her that even though he is the one with the authority to condemn her, he does not. But Jesus still knows what is best for this woman's life. He knows that she was not meant to continue in a life of sin. He knows that it would be best for her to go and sin no more. Jesus knows what is best for us. I actually really love the simplicity here in Jesus' instruction. He doesn't over-spiritualize this as spiritual warfare. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't blame the scribes and the Pharisees for dragging her here. Nor does he have a multi-step process for breaking this habit of sin. Rather, he gives a plain directive. Go and sin no more. She was experiencing the mercy of God from the authority of the one who has the ability to offer salvation. As a direct result of the mercy, the release of the punishment that she was due, Jesus tells her the appropriate response for her is to go and live rightly. Go and live well. Look, I'm not saying that at times we, we don't need uh, help in breaking habitual sin. We often do need help whenever it comes to habitual sin. And it often requires a lot of humility from us in order to seek help. And at times, our sin is a result of something spiritual, some, some warfare going on in our lives just outside of us. And at times, uh, our sin is related to the people around us. You guys have all been in that bad crowd before. You know what I'm talking about, all of you in the motor motorcycle gang. Oh, no, no Hell's Angels in the, in the room? Okay, my bad. That's on me. But the first thing that we must do is we must go and sin no more. We, can, we need to hear this clear and directive, uh, clear directive. Some of us need that plain directive. Jesus knows what is best for us. He wants what is best for us. And that, is to ex and, and that exists when we take up the cause of living well, when we put away the sin that plagues us. 
A few, a few verses later in chapter 8, Jesus picks up this narrative again. And he's teaching in Jerusalem again. And Jesus tells the crowds that he is the light of the world. And he offers the light of life to them. Then Jesus predicts his own departure. And he aligns himself as the son of man. And he'll be lifted up. He's saying, guys, things are going to happen. And all of a sudden, upon hearing this, many believe. Let's pick it up there. This is starting in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded, Truly I tell you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So it is. So, so if the son sets you free, you really will be free. So after all the scrutiny and the challenges that Jesus has faced in Jerusalem over these past days, this day comes when he teaches and many believe in him. Well, this isn't the first time in the book of John that we've seen many believe in him. In chapter 2, in chapter 6, many believed in Jesus, and then upon hearing his teaching and, and how hard it would be to follow him, they walk away. And so Jesus wants to be super clear here. He wants to tell them, here is how you continue. Here is how you continue to believe in me. Here is how you continue to follow me. It requires them to live out what Jesus is teaching. This isn't just obedience to Jesus' teaching. Rather, that they love what Jesus is teaching. They adore his teaching. And they continue. They persevere in loving and living out the teachings of Jesus because they are so enamored by them. In this faithful focus on Jesus and his teachings, the believers will find freedom. It's Jesus that offers true freedom. And of course, we experience this freedom in Jesus not just by thinking or saying we believe, but actually by a moral commitment. There's a moral commitment here to live well and to love our neighbors. We see that this has moral implications because of the way that Jesus answers the confusion of the believers. What are they being set free from? The listeners had answered with an emphatic, we have never been a slave to anyone. Since from the time of Moses, their entire recorded history, you know, all this stuff, the Jewish people had prided themselves on their freedom to worship God. Yet, they were blind to the fact that they had missed the mark. Missing the mark is actually what the word sin means. Y'all know where the word sin comes from? No archers in the room? Okay, it's fine. Uh, whenever the King James Version was being translated, they were trying to come up with a word that would encapsulate what it means whenever you err or whenever you fail to do what God says. And so, being the 17th century, they were looking at these guys doing archery, and they were like, well, they missed the mark. And it actually means whenever you miss the entire target. In archery, that is to sin. And so they applied that into the King James Version, and ever since we've had that word in our vocabulary. 
So Jesus begins to explain to the crowd that they have missed the whole target as far as their lifestyle and morals go. Not only have they missed the target, but they've allowed themselves to become trapped, even enslaved to the desires of the things that have led them away from the true God. There's good news, though. If they would come after him, if they would follow him, he would show them the right path. Not only is he willing to put them on the right path, but in fact, as the son of God, he has this unique ability, just like the adulterous woman, he has this unique ability to forgive where we miss the mark. He can set us free. He doesn't give them all of the directions, but he tells them what is required to continue in his teachings. It actually reminds me of, uh, of a time last year when we were out in Moab, Utah, my family and I. And we had just arrived in town, and, uh, and we went to get dinner, and we, we hoped to get a hike in before, uh, before bedtime. And my boys are young, so bedtime's pretty early. Um, and so we asked the waiter about, like, where, where's a great spot we can hike close by? And he gave us some directions, and he told us, he warned us, he said, there is a water crossing. I said, okay, that's fine. No big deal. And so we headed out, and the, the parking lot was pretty packed. And we found a spot, and we, we got the boys loaded up. I had Graham on my back, all 45 pounds. And Meredith had Peter strapped to her, and, and we headed off on this trail. And, uh, and there was a water crossing. And then there was another water crossing. And then there was another water crossing. And then there was the waist-deep water crossing. A few more crossings later, and a little bit of encouragement from folks that were headed back on the trail, we finally made it through this canyon to this beautiful waterfall on, on the red rocks of Utah. If you've ever seen it, it's amazing. And there's this pool that is fresh and just awesome. And so the boys and I, we, we went for a quick, quick swim. The sun was already starting to set. And in the canyon, of course, the sun is setting quicker because you got the canyon walls that are blocking it out. And so we took a, a quick swim and we, uh, we hopped out, we loaded back up and we started making our way out. And as soon as we loaded the boys up, of course, they did what boys their age do. They fell asleep because they're bouncing, and it's comfy. And uh, so that was not a good thing for bedtime, by the way. Um, but the sun, we, we beat the sun out of that canyon, um, and we, we have this great experience, this great memory of this beautiful sight. The only way we got there was by following the instructions of this guy. He didn't give us very good directions. He didn't give us all the story, but we followed it. And we saw this awesome thing. In the same way, following Jesus' direction will often lead you to the place that is best for you, but it may be a little unknown. Look, to bring it all back together, Jesus desires what is best for us. That we turn away from the areas we have messed up and that we leave the shame that we might feel or that might be imposed on us in our past. He calls us to continue in his teaching and to live well by loving our neighbors. And that is good news for us. 
So we're going to take communion here in a few minutes. But as we close, um, I've got three big questions for you guys to ponder over as you think about and examine as you take communion. Is there sin you're choosing over living well that you need to walk away from? Do you need to listen to the plain directive of Jesus? Go and sin no more. Is there shame you're experiencing that you need to walk out of and into the light? Is there something that Jesus teaches that's hard for you to follow? Let's pray and then we'll jump into communion. Dearly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your plain and clear direction. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to follow you. Thank you for offering us freedom from the things that bind us, from the things that hold us back. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone struggling with sin, Lord, that they would choose to lay it down. And if there is someone struggling with undue shame, Lord, that they would put that in the past. Lord, and as we read your word, I pray for the strength for the wisdom, for the ability to follow the things that you have said. Or we declare that you know what is best. And it's only through you that our sin is forgiven. Amen.